Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And welcome to another Wave of Action report. As you know, a worldwide wave of action began on April 4th of this year and will continue through July 4th. And while this is the next phase of the Occupy movement, I'm sure that you've also noticed a lack of mainstream media coverage about what's taking place. And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. As was discovered during Phase 1, which was Occupy Wall Street, our local police forces have now been transformed into heavily equipped military units. In essence, the uh, police-slash-surveillance state has uh, begun a somewhat light-handed form of martial law. I say light-handed because it's the plan to uh, keep us all thinking that the threats to our freedom come from a ragtag bunch of faceless terrorists. The fact is, however, that here in the U.S., the likelihood of being struck by lightning is significantly higher than that of being involved in a terrorist incident. How many people do you know who have been struck by lightning? If the answer is zero, then perhaps you should be worrying about something other than the fear of terrorists that the Obama administration is pushing down our throats. But I digress. As I pointed out in an earlier Wave of Action podcast, this phase of the movement involves doing mainly positive things, like uh, helping people fight off greedy banksters who continue to foreclose on homes and uh, put people out on the street at alarming rates. There are uh, other wave of action programs that are housing the homeless and uh, helping other less fortunate citizens. And uh, then there's the monkey-wrenching activities, such as producing fake commercials that expose the dirty underbelly of some products and uh, some companies that manufacture them. The uh, best of these that I've seen so far is the fake General Motors commercial that John Oliver did on his show last week. And I'll put a link to that in the program notes and uh, encourage you to check it out if you get a chance. The fake commercial comes uh, in the last two minutes of the clip, and after you first watch it with the sound on, turn off your audio and just watch the fake ad with the captions that Oliver's staff added. It's <laughs> it's simply priceless and uh, most definitely reflects the tone of the wave of action. Now, today, rather than a simple report of what others are doing this time, I thought that I should uh, add a few of my own ideas and comments. So, there are three parts to this podcast. First, I'm going to play part of an interview with Glenn Grenwald about the Edward Snowden revelations. Then I'm going to play part of a talk about the revolutionary aspects of Bitcoin, the digital currency. Finally, I'm going to uh, combine those two topics and give you some of my own ideas about how the Bitcoin protocol, not the money, but the Bitcoin protocol, may hold an answer to several pressing problems in our society. So, let's begin. As you already know, Glenn Grenwald is one of two journalists that Edward Snowden trusted with the huge cache of secret documents that he's bringing to light. And let me just say that in my opinion, uh, they are bringing these documents to light in the spirit of transparency that the Obama administration promised but has refused to deliver on. So, in my opinion, they're just helping him keep his promises. I've now finished reading Nowhere to Hide, which uh, is Grenwald's book about the story, and if you've ever listened to anything that I've said here in the uh, salon, well, I hope that you listen to my advice that you should most definitely read this book. 
If you're a dusty old fart like me, it's going to put the final nail in the coffin of uh, what us old guys were led to believe was American freedom. And uh, if you're somewhere between 35 and 60, then this book should be required reading. But if you're between 15 and 35, your life, your freedom, and your future are going to be largely determined by what happens as these revelations continue to unfold. And uh, I'll have more to say about this after we listen to this conversation between Charlie Rose and Glenn Grenwald. I am pleased to have Glenn, Glenn Grenwald at this table for the first time. Welcome. Great to be here. Um, let's start with the title, No Place to Hide. comes from Frank Church and the CIA Investigating Committee. It does, from the famous Church Committee of the mid-1970s that discovered that when surveillance apparatuses are vested in the U.S. government without very much oversight or transparency, it will inevitably be abused. And what he said at the time was nobody knew that this capability had been amassed. The mandate of the NSA was never spied domestically. And what he said was just the existence is so dangerous because if it ever got turned against the American people, there would be no place to hide. And, of course, it has come to be that the NSA now does direct itself both at foreign nationals and at the American population. Do you believe that these uh, disclosures have changed the NSA? They've certainly changed the debate surrounding the NSA. Um, I believe they're going to change the authorities that the NSA has as a result of Congress. Um, and I think that it has made the NSA for the first time since at least the September 11th attacks question whether or not just because it has the capability to do something, it means it ought to do it. Do you believe it's changed the attitude of the president? I do. I think there's a serious question about the extent to which President Obama even knew about the NSA's reach when Angela Merkel was revealed to be a primary target of the agency. The White House was adamant that he had no idea that there was this level of personalized surveillance against allied leaders. And, and I think Would you find that surprising that he did not know? I'm not, I wouldn't find it surprising that he didn't know at the granular level every target that the NSA chooses. It certainly must be the case that after five years in office, he had a pretty good sense of the reach of the NSA. Yeah, I mean, at some point, when the, your briefer says to you this, this, and this, you have to say, how did you get that? Yeah, um, there's there's has to be all sorts of indications in every presidential daily briefing that he gets that there's a very wide reach of the NSA, certainly far wider than he would have known as a senator, not on the Intelligence Committee. Do you think it's changed the opinion of the American public? I know it has. I mean, one of the most extraordinary polling results to me since we started doing the reporting, and frankly, one of the most gratifying, is that Pew every year since 9-11 has asked Americans, do you fear more the threat of foreign terrorists or the threat of government to your rights? And every year since 9-11, overwhelmingly Americans have said, I fear more the threat of terrorism. For the first time ever since 9-11 in 2013, it was a radical reversal. Something like 65 to 35 said, I fear more the threat to my rights from the government than I do the threat of and foreign terrorism. And you believe that's because of these disclosures? It, it certainly it has to be. It's a radical, sudden, immediate shift in the wake of the Snowden disclosures. Are you certain? certain that no one has been um, either arrested or killed because of these disclosures. I am, and I'll tell you why. You know, we have, as everybody knows, many, many tens of thousands of documents that were given to us by Edward Snowden. And even though we've only ha we've had them now for almost a year, a very small percentage of those documents have actually been published. And the reason is, is because before we publish something, we vet them with huge numbers of editors and experienced national security reporters. We talk to the government. We talk to lawyers to make certain that nothing in them can you jeopardize any. You talk to the any. government, meaning? We 
I don't personally, because I'm not a big fan of that process, but the editors with whom I work go to the government and say, here's what we intend to publish. Make your case about why anything in here should be withheld. So people like The Guardian and The Washington Post would do that? Or all the foreign media outlets with which I've reported, I've required them to do that as well. It's required by you or required by their own principles? Both. Nobody has resisted, but it's something that I insist upon before I share make documents. Make sure you check with, this out with the government. Make sure you there. go to the government, tell them what it is you intend to publish, and let them make their case to you and therefore to me about why they think these things should be published. And, and then you decide based on their answer as to whether you'll go ahead and publish. Right, and overwhelmingly. Even though they say, please don't publish it because yeah. it'll do this or it'll do that. Precisely. You make your own decision based right. on what they tell you. And overwhelmingly, we have gone forward and published. And, and you know, there's a big criticism out there. It doesn't get heard much that we actually haven't published enough. And, and I actually find that criticism more valid than the criticism that we published too much. I'll come back to that okay. in terms of what you haven't published. But when you look at the stuff that you have published, um, do you believe that it has damaged U.S. security interest? No. I believe that no circumstances in terms of means and methods have been disclosed that would harm the intelligence gathering that might be legitimate in terms of America's national security. I absolutely believe it has not, and there's been zero evidence presented by anyone that it has. But there have been lots of people from the national security apparatus who step forward and say it has. Right. And, but the thing about that is and and the reason why you on this case. Well, the reason why that doesn't move me much is because if you look at every case of unwanted transparency that had, where light has been shined on the U.S. government going all the way back to Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, which is widely regarded as heroic and noble, the government says the same thing in every single case. This transparency will cause blood on people's hands. That will cause people to die. It will jeopardize our security. It's almost never presented with special specificity and there's almost never any evidence to demonstrate it. It's a script from which they read. So you think then that the people who say that are lying or intentionally want to deceive in order to shut it down, surveillance? I think it's both. Or, or, or limits on surveillance. I think it's both. I think, you know, and it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, I think one of the ideas, the this principles of the founding is that power that's exercised without transparency will be abused. But I also think it's that the national security state believes that unless everything it's doing is kept secret, it will be less effective what they do and that will in turn result in security. I believe they genuinely believe that. Okay, but you've got to have some kind of, I mean, everything can't be, uh, cannot be transparent in a national security operation. Right, which it? is why a small percentage of the documents that Mr. Snowden gave us have been published, right? Yeah. So we certainly recognize that there's legitimate secrecy. You know, the broad contours of what the government is doing certainly have to be known to a population to have a healthy, thriving democracy, even though specific programs or tactics or targets may legitimately be kept secret. How do you choose what you release? We go through the documents, we vet them all, we look for the significant stories, we consult with experts, we begin the reporting process, and then when they're ready to be published, we publish them instantly. When they're ready to be published means what? Meaning that we have a very good understanding of what the material is, of what the revelations are. We filled in whatever gaps there are with extra reporting. Um, we've consulted with experts, and we're convinced by talking to our lawyers and after talking to the government that we can safely and responsibly publish it. I'm quoted in your book uh, in an interview with the president asking where the balance was. I mean, what's your definition of where the balance is? You know, I, to me, there's there's a great um, and exciting aspect to that question, which is we can look to what we did in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s when the height of the Cold War had all these intercontinental ballistic missiles pointed at American cities. There were terrorist groups and the IRA, the PLO, Hamas. And what we did, the framework we created was we said, it is important that the government be able to eavesdrop at times, but before they do that, they need to go to a court and present evidence that the person on whom they want to serve, eavesdrop um, has actually done something that merits the surveillance, not this indiscriminate, suspicionless mass surveillance, but very targeted and specific. Is that primarily metadata? 
Well, I mean, it's not just metadata. I mean, the government collects billions of calls and emails every single day. Um, they collect so much of the content of communications around the world that they can't even store it all physically, even though huge amounts of data can be stored on a small thumb drive. Look at even what you've talked about today. I mean, what is astounding when you hear it is that uh, the disclosure from you, I think, uh, about how routers and things being shipped overseas were opened repackaged with a security device inside. Yeah, backdoor. And, you know, the amazing thing about this, Charlie, and this is why I feel like the journalism we've done has been in the public interest, is because for many years the U.S. government has been warning the world that the Chinese do that to the products of Chinese companies. Don't buy routers and servers and switches from the Chinese because the Chinese government goes into the products and puts backdoors in. And the whole time the NSA is doing Exactly that. And, and you know, when you have a government that's misleading its people to that extent, um, I do think democracy becomes imperiled. And it's yeah. the role of journalists to yeah. make people aware of that. I suspect the Chinese have said you don't necessarily occupy the high ground here. Right. And, and you know, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that I think the American people have the right to know if they're being told by their government but, that the Chinese are evil for doing these things that the U.S. government itself is doing. In which raises the other question. Does everybody do it? Not everybody. In fact, but nobody capable of doing it does it. Nobody surveils the internet and world communications to the extent the United okay, States. Okay, but to does. the extent is it fine? Def- definition may be about competence. In other words, you do it because you know how to do it. Others might do it, and they do it in part. And might do more if they had the competence sure, to I do mean, it. Nobody thinks that spying in and of itself and all its manifestations and permutations is illegitimate. Spying has always existed between states and it always will. Are the sole problems in any one particular country? Yeah, I mean, if the United States were targeting its spying at traditionally recognized legitimate targets, um, military officials, for, heads of foreign state, um, there would never have been an Edward Snowden. There would be no reporting. There would be no controversy. It's the indiscriminate nature, the goal of the NSA, as they themselves describe it, as collect it all. Uh, so Exactly. And so in terms of your own reporting, is, is that exactly the issue for you? It is the catch-all. It is the indiscriminate all that is the most offensive thing that here you disclose in this book as you tell us the story. I think that is absolutely the most significant part of the story is the ubiquitousness of it, the, the, limit, the limitlessness of the NSA's institutional aspiration to turn the Internet and all forms of digital communication into a field where there is no privacy. Literally, it's not an exaggeration. It's just definitionally the case that if you subject all communication to their surveillance net, privacy ceases to exist. How did you first meet Edward Snowden? He had contacted me in and December. who were you at that time? <laughs> he, he had contacted <laughs> well, me in you December. Before tell me who sure. you were. You were a reporter, investigative reporter, uh, reporting for various organizations. Yeah, I mean, I principally was at the time writing for The Guardian. Um, I had written about civil liberties and surveillance um, for a long time because I got into political journalism as a constitutional lawyer interested in these Bush executive power theories that were adopted in the wake of 9-11. And at the time I was writing for The Guardian, um, I had actually written a book back in 2006 on the NSA scandal of that of that time, which was much more limited. It was about telephone calls. Um, and so Edward Snowden was actually a reader of mine um, for several years and decided that I would be a person with whom he would want to work on, on this story. Now, what was it about you that made him decide that? You know, a lot of people have assumed that it was because I was warning about the dangers of surveillance and he thought that I would therefore be sympathetic to his viewpoint. Yeah. But it was actually much more my views on, on journalism. I had been very critical, for example, of the New York Times 
because in 2004, Jim Risen had discovered that the NSA was, was eavesdropping without warrants, and the New York Times, at the behest of the Bush administration, blocked him from publishing that story for a year and a half when George Bush summoned Bill Keller to the Oval Office and said, if you publish this story, it's going to damage national security. And they only ultimately published that story because Risen got frustrated, wrote a book, was about to break the story, and then did it. And they won the Pulitzer Prize for it. Um, and I think Snowden was very worried that he was going to unravel his life to bring this information to a newspaper that was too close to the government. And he believed that I would report on the story adversarially and aggressively and that my being at The Guardian would let me do that, that that was an environment conducive to that kind of reporting. So it was much more my views about journalism than it was my views on surveillance that led him to want to contact And so me. how did he reach out to you? So he emailed me at first and, and of course he was petrified in retrospect for very good reason of, of saying anything specific about who he was. He wanted me to install encryption. He was obsessed with the idea that I installed these very sophisticated encryption programs that I didn't know anything about and didn't know how to install. And because he wouldn't tell me who he was or what he had, I really didn't prioritize him. And he kept kind of urging me to do it. And over seven weeks, um, he kept asking me to do it, and I didn't. And he finally went to Laura Poitras, who's a yes. documentarian and Academy Award and, and, uh, nominated and filmmaker. And business partner with with the new project. Yeah, and, and she, she's one a of the founding editors partner. with me. Yeah, and um, she did have encryption because of the film she's been working on, and, and he communicated with her and asked her to involve me. And then we spoke online, Laura and Snowden and I did for maybe six weeks um, in encrypted environments. And uh, he insisted that I come to Hong Kong, and, and I told him I would as long as I got a sense of what he had. He sent me a few documents that were shocking in their content. What were they? One was the PRISM program, which, right. which ultimately made such a big impact on the world about NSA access to Facebook and Google and, and Yahoo and the like. Um, others were training materials that NSA analysts get to show the, the range of the information that they could get. And at that point, I knew that... This was the most serious leak in certainly NSA history. And I got on the next plane to New York, met with my editors in, in New York at The Guardian, and then the following day went with Laura and another Guardian reporter, Ewan McCaskill, uh, to Hong Kong. And, and we worked with Snowden for the next 10 days. And tell me your stories. first impression. I was, you know, um, shocked because I had been assuming that he was this very senior official because he had access to all kinds of information um, that were top secret. But more so, he had a very sophisticated insight, um, sort of this world-weary weary, um, view about what the national security state had become. And when I saw this kid, he's, you know, 29 but looks six years younger, wearing jeans and a T-shirt, it was very disorienting. Um, I thought it might be a scam or I thought it was the son of the actual source and he was going to take us, sort of like the Wizard of Oz hiding behind the curtain um but then i sat down with him immediately questioned him for six straight hours um and saw that he was extremely serious and credible um and that i could rely on him as a, a as a source where i'd put the credibility of not just the guardian but myself and my career on the line to to report on these documents do you believe uh that he has disclosed anything that he has and perhaps not made it public but has disclosed it to the Chinese government or the Russian government? I, I absolutely do not believe that. Um, and you I'll have tell you, means to know that. The, you, you can never prove a negative, right? So I can't sitting at the table or in any other way prove to you that something did not happen, including that. But I, I can tell you the evidence, and Bart Gelman of the Washington Post, um, who worked with Mr. Snowden, is adamant in the same way that I am, that it's, certain, that it's very unlikely that it happened. Um, in part, he is a highly trained operative by the NSA in how to protect uh, digital information from the invasion by the most sophisticated foreign governments. Um, and most of all, he didn't do what he did, unravel his life, risk prison in life, um, to 
to turn over information to a foreign government that would help them better surveil their own citizens. And destroy his credibility. And, and, and destroy his credibility, turn him into a traitor in his own eyes and the eyes of the world. It's extremely unlikely that it Is happened. anything about what he has done um, traitorous? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I mean, you think about it. He could have sold this material and been extremely rich for the rest of his life. He could have secretly handed it to adversary governments. He did what you want whistleblowers to do, which is come to journalists and ask the journalists to make the decisions about what should be published and what shouldn't. But he does not come in an act of civil disobedience. Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of debate about what civil disobedience entails. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg wrote a, a brilliant op-ed in the Washington Post in July essentially saying that he was right to flee because... I, I know that. But on the other hand, the other people who argue that that if you're prepared to engage in civil disobedience to violate the law, then you should be willing to stand up to the punishment, as you well know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I see civil disobedience. There was a very good chance that he was going to end up in prison for the rest of his life. We assumed, in fact, in Hong Kong that that was by far the most likely outcome. Um, he managed to escape that. Um, I don't think it requires that you turn yourself over to decades in, in a cage um, in order to prove that your act is noble. So what is he asking for now? I think he, he was very clear, and, and to me this is the most impressive part, that he did not want to single, unilaterally, single-handedly destroy these programs that he found so disturbing, which he could have done by uploading all these documents to the Internet. He wanted to trigger an informed worldwide debate to let human beings decide whether or not this is something that we want to allow to happen to the Internet. And I think he's been extremely gratified that a debate far more serious and widespread and sustained than anything we thought in the best-case scenario would happen has actually happened. And I think what he wants is exactly what is happening, which is democratic debate over whether well, this should continue. Do you think he expects to live in Russia the rest of his life? He thinks it's a possibility. There's a real debate in Germany and Brazil about whether to extend asylum to him in recognition of, of in, in what Germany he did. In Germany and in... And in Brazil. In Brazil. The two countries that probably reacted most strongly to, to the revelations. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's a possibility, but it's very possible that he will end up uh, in Russia for the rest of his life. A lot of very tough, pragmatic, and hard-minded people have said to me, it's impossible, you know, that something has not happened in Russia for Putin to allow him to stay there. You know, that he must have given the Russians something. You know, I mean, people... to allow this. Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to make, you know, accusations or claims without evidence, as people have done about about that. Um, I've never seen Edward Snowden lie. I believe him when he says he went to Russia without any of the digital material. The question, oh, he has none of it there. Right, that he has none he, of it. But, but, he, but Then where is it? He... he, he got rid of what he had physically before um, he got on the plane he gave it to journalists right and then and purposely didn't take it with him but, but let me just say something about putin which is i think it's easy to see why putin wants him there um for one thing putin has demanded the extradition of all sorts of people who are russian who are in the united states that he believes are criminal and the view of the position of the united states has been we're not giving them to you because there's no extradition treaty and it's a huge propaganda coup for putin to say we're protecting the human rights of this whistleblower from persecution inside the united states i think putin loves the fact that snowden is is in russia um, and gets all kinds of, of perception benefits from it does he look more favorably on what Russia does than what the United States does? You know, I think, you know, one of the, the questions that we get asked sometimes is why haven't you talked a lot about Russian surveillance? And yes. the answer is, is because Edward Snowden worked inside the American surveillance Fair system and he knows about that. Yeah, and enough. he knows very little about Russian surveillance other than what publicly is known. But, There's sort of a theory that, that I think Noam Chomsky and other people have talked about, that if you're a citizen of a country, your first duty is to stand up and object to the wrongful acts of your own government as opposed yeah. to governments halfway across the world over which you have no influence. 
times. Um, but I think that, yeah, you know, I, just, I understand that argument. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's part of what motivates him. But I also think it, it is the fact that the U.S. government is so far ahead of every other country in, in terms technology. of all cap- capabilities and resource devotion. Um, there's a reason why we're so far ahead of every other country. It's because we spend $75 billion a year mm-hmm. on this surveillance state. Well, and um, because and, we've led the technology revolution and, yeah, in we've the world created the internet. In, a, in a huge way. Um, and the internet largely physically is on U.S. soil. You're right. There's lots of different reasons. Uh, I read that for you, the NSA was contrary to the spirit of the digital culture. What did you mean? There's, you know, there's, there's the idea of the Internet from the beginning was that it was going to be this kind of vast free place that would equalize the playing field, empower the powerless, liberate people in tyranny, and that the only way that that would really work is if we were able to express ourselves with privacy, we were able to coordinate and organize with our fellow citizens freely. And what the NSA has done is essentially converted the Internet from this unprecedented zone of freedom into the most powerful means of surveillance ever known in human history. And it really has subverted what the Internet and its greatest promise could have been. And I think that's why younger people in particular are so supportive of the Snowden Revelations, because they understand what that Internet could have been for themselves because they grew up yeah. but, And you it. and others cite privacy as a central component of what it means to be an American. Sure. I mean, privacy from the beginning, you know, the, I think the American ethos has always been, um, this is my land. Um, the government cannot enter it, even if it's to catch criminals, um, unless there's a probable cause search warrant. And the idea of being left alone, as, as the Supreme Court has said in, in several cases, is, is the anchor right to everything else. As you release this information through these newspapers and other sources, uh, other distributors, do they pay you for the information so that they can print it? They don't pay me for the information. They pay me for the work that I do as a freelance journalist. So um, they pay you what you write, not what you release. Right. And, and, you know, if I were to cooperate with four media outlets without having a freelance journalism contract, the government could easily say that I've now converted myself from a journalist to a source and have lost the, the protections legally that I need to publish top secret information. And so it's been important to do it within a journalistic framework just for legal reasons. It is said that, that you were offended when they described you early on not as a journalist but as a blogger or an activist. You know, I mean, I I don't really mind what labels people apply because I think ultimately these labels don't have much meaning. They're sort of just shorthand signifiers. But the the reason I was disconcerting, and it was the New York Times that led the way in doing it, they called me an anti-surveillance activist and and a blogger repeatedly, is because there are – very serious legal questions that come from publishing top secret information. It's by no means clear that it's a legal thing to do. And the one thing that enables you to do it is that you act as a journalist and therefore can invoke the First Amendment's right. free press provisions. And and so for having to have other journalists essentially while I'm doing it go out of their way to depict me as something outside of journalism, mm-hmm. um, I, I do think was was disturbing. Here's what I don't understand. Um, how deep does this go? Not their surveillance. But the information that somebody, you or whoever has it in charge, who's in charge of it? There's, you know, Laura Poitras and I are the only ones who have the full archive. The Washington Post, The Guardian, The New York Times, ProPublica all have very substantial subsets. And how much is it? There are many tens of thousands of, of top secret documents. And, and so the question now becomes, you know, we're thinking about ways to expand the access for other media organizations around the world. To and make have you sure seen it all, gets all of them? I've, uh, by now I have looked at all of the documents at least once. And so just give me your sense of them. It is, you know, it is 
just stunning to watch. Um, you know, I'm somebody who has written about this for a long time, and, and I've been warning for a long time that I thought the NSA was an out-of-control agency engaged in indiscriminate surveillance. And yet I was genuinely shocked, and even to this day, 11 months later, remain shocked when I read these documents just to see in practice the idea that all of our communications electronically on telephone and Internet, um, all of our activities in the eyes of this government should be collected and monitored and stored. It, it is remarkable to watch them believe that and then to put that in yeah. practice. Uh, but are there deep American secrets that go beyond surveillance in these documents? Deep American secrets about how we go about our national security. Not how we obtain information, but information we have. The NSA is, is part of the Defense Department. It's run by generals. It cooperates on things like the drone program, on things like uh, the deployment of troops around the world. Um, you know, I, one of the first reports I did in, in, in our new journalistic venture was with Jeremy Scahill, who's written about drones a lot, um, about how the NSA uses metadata analysis to determine who should live and who should die through the drone program. But, yeah, there are a lot of very sensitive documents in the archive that he gave us that, that go beyond surveillance. You have described uh, the last piece of material that you release will be like Firecracker and it will be the great finale. Right. What consequences will there come from the great finale? I think that if you look at the surveillance abuses of the past, the the principal um, question has always been on whom is the government spying domestically uh, and and for what reasons, which who are their targets. Um, and that's the missing part of the puzzle in terms of the public reporting that has taken place. Who the targets are. Who specifically are the targets domestically, American citizens, U.S. persons, people legally inside the United States. And so the investigation that we're currently working on and the reporting that we're currently doing um, that I do think will complete the picture um, is to answer that question in a very comprehensive way. When will that happen? As soon as it's ready. Um, I, if, if, I, if I give you a time frame, my editor will call me and, and probably murder me. So um, I don't want to put that pressure on myself, but it's, it's, it's coming or, sooner or rather than later. I don't want to be responsible. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, finally, there, this. Uh, suppose you do define, find out that, in fact, you have done grievous damage. Somebody, you seem like a rational man to me, you know, grievous damage to American national security. Or B, that it has caused harm to people. What will you do? Will you say... I was wrong. I'm sorry. You know, I, I think that all reporting entails risks. Um, you know, I mean, I think that we're making the best judgments that we can. I don't expect that to happen. Um, if it did happen, I'd be the first to acknowledge that it did. Um, but I also think there's grievous harm from allowing a very powerful government, the world's most powerful government, to do extremely consequential things without any transparency well, or I mean, accountability. That's been pointed out and discussed. I'd... No, but so I just mean, I mean, you, you, you know, I mean, you that have point to... is made, isn't it? Yeah, but but you know, as a journalist, I mean, you realize that when you disclose secret documents, um, there is a risk that you could make a bad judgment. You can make a, a mistake um, that can result in, in harm to somebody. Um, and I, I, I say that, that I take that risk because the risk of allowing this information to remain suppressed is extreme. It's, it's quite great. And, and so, like I said, I don't expect it to happen. And if it did, we would hold ourselves accountable the same way we do other people. What fears do you have? Um, you know, I have a fear that we're, we're not going to find the right way to get all of the information that should be 
public out into the public and in a responsible way. Um, I feel a burden, an obligation to make sure that what should be reported gets reported in a timely fashion. Um, and it's a difficult challenge. I, I worry about that. Um, for a long time, I worried about what the legal consequences would be of, of my doing this journalism. There were senior Obama officials arguing that it was um, criminal and that, that we could be arrested if we came back to the U.S. My partner was so famously... You had a conversation with senior Obama officials about this? Well, they've publicly said it. I had lawyers who have good contacts in the Justice Department trying to get some assurances that if I came back to the U.S. Um, that I wouldn't be arrested, that there wasn't a grand and jury pending. Given assurances. We were given no assurances. They purposely kept us in the dark in a state of uncertainty um, about whether they intended to do that. Uh, they wouldn't give us any information. Um, you know, my partner was detained, and there's an active an terrorism uh, investigation in the U.K., so there's definitely been risks. Um, and, and when you have many tens of thousands of secret documents, there are lots of intelligence agencies around the world world that would like to get their hands on that. And so there's security risk, there's physical risk, um, and then there's just the well, burden of trying to make... officials would like to get their hands on it, doesn't that say something? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, for, it could just say that they want to know how to defend themselves against the invasions it's of their communications. Uh, but, you know, no, I mean, if, if the United States government were, is invading the communications of, of government officials, of consulates, of embassies, you would just rationally want to know what they're doing and how they're doing it so you can protect yourself. Maybe you want to know what they're doing to replicate it and do it yourself as well. Are the negotiations going on at all with Edward Snowden uh, to somehow allow him to believe he could come back and get whatever it is that he's looking for? There's some negotiations, but they're not very fruitful. Um, I don't see a day when the U.S. government will allow him to return without Who's a lot of jail with time. Whom? Well, he has lawyers, including right. the ACLU um, and, and others. And, and who and negotiates with them? The Justice Department. Yeah. So there are conversations between the Justice Department and his lawyers about which circumstances he might come back. There have been. I just don't, they, they haven't progressed very far at all. When will you see him? Um, I actually expect to go to, to Russia um, at some point in the very, very near future um, for an interview and, and for... Um, an interview with him or to be interviewed about this book? To or? be interviewed jointly with him. Um, and, and I can't disclose the details yet just because it hasn't been announced, but that will happen in, in this very short-term future. So it'll <laughs> yeah. be sort of the reunion of our one-year anniversary from Hong Kong. Well, uh, that should give you a little more background about the significance of the revelations about the NSA spying on you, your friends, and uh, your family members. Just think, every link you've ever clicked on is recorded in your personal profile and then cross-referenced to the files of those you have in some way or another become connected to, no matter how remotely. Now, I know that a lot of people say that they have nothing to hide, but uh, I'll bet that there are a lot of men, both old and young, who most certainly would not want their mothers to see the list of all the websites that they've been visiting late at night. Actually, I have to admit that it really bothers me when people say that they intend to keep on using Gmail, Hotmail, and uh, the other NSA fronts just uh, simply because it's convenient, doesn't cost anything, and uh, besides, they don't have anything to hide. Well, how about if we start a list of people who say that and uh, then post those names on a public website so that, well, we can all keep our eyes on them and uh, determine if they're telling the truth about having nothing to hide. After all, if uh, they don't mind the Google and Facebook kids, uh, along with thousands of government employees and contractors having access to all that they do, well, then they shouldn't mind a few more of us looking over their shoulders as well. But in all seriousness, uh, just think about what's happening to our collective psyche. Knowing that every keystroke we make, every link we click, and every email message we send or receive is being recorded in a file with your name on it. 
Can you honestly tell me that this in no way causes you to self-censor what you are doing and saying? Well, you can tell me that, but I'm not going to believe you. As I said in the introduction to this conversation, Glenn Grenwald's new book, No Place to Hide, becomes ever more important the younger you are. I don't have all that many years left for the government to continue assembling a dossier on me, but if you're still young enough to be in school, at any level, you should really be thinking very carefully about these things. Now before I go to the next segment of this podcast, I'm first going to read one of the more than 100 sentences that I've underlined in Grenwald's important book, and hopefully it'll give you something to think about the next time you log on to Facebook or use Gmail. Here's what Grenwald has to say. When the government knows everyone you call and everyone who calls you, plus the exact length of all those phone conversations, when it can list every single one of your email correspondence and every location from where your emails were sent, it can create a remarkably comprehensive picture of your life, your associations and your activities, including some of your most intimate and private information. That's the end of the quote. In other words, uh, the power elite now have ways in which to predict whether one day you may become a threat. And uh, then, just like in that old movie, they can maybe uh, preemptively marginalize you. In fact, it's uh, happening every day. So, think about it. Now I'm going to play part of a talk that was given at the Next Web conference in Amsterdam by Stefan Molinier, who is the host of Freedom Main Radio, a popular Canadian program. And Stefan gives a really succinct presentation about how our governments are able to keep us all in perpetual servitude. For example, if you're getting out of university with a large debt, say $44,000, you will never, as in never, be out of debt again in your entire life. Ask around and see if that isn't so. And uh, Stefan not only explains why this is so and how it works, but he goes on to explain how a global digital currency, like Bitcoin, can change things. In fact, he shows how cryptocurrencies could be the greatest revolution in human history and the foundation of a truly free and prosperous planet. So uh, let's join the audience now at the next web conference and uh, hear what he has to say. Good afternoon, everybody. Hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for coming out to Bitcoin versus political power. I have a technology background, which is probably why I managed to slip into the conference. I was an entrepreneur for about 15 or so years in the high-tech field, and then I got bitten by the philosophy bug. I studied philosophy uh, at a graduate level in Canada, and uh, I ended up running the show. We have about 65 million downloads. I've been on TV. I speak all over the world. And since about 2011, uh, I've been really talking up Bitcoin. Now, just curious, how many people have Bitcoins? I don't mean on them. I'm just curious how many people have Bitcoins. Okay, good. Good for you. How many people are interested in getting bitcoins? Not that I have any on me to provide, but okay, good. And I'm going to make a case here. I mean, bitcoin is great technology. It's genius code. Uh, this, this public ledger of value transfer and uh, information, copyright, deeds, wills, almost anything you can think of can be implemented in the bitcoin architecture. It is one of the greatest innovations, I think, in human history. It's a lot to say, but I'll hopefully make the case here. And one of the things it has the power to do is to limit the seemingly endless growth of political power that literally appears to be eating up the world, eating up the next generation. 
the unfunded liabilities of the U.S. government are estimated at over $100 trillion. That's on a GDP of $15 trillion. Can't possibly pay it. Even here in the Netherlands, unfunded liabilities, the Social Security pensions, all the stuff the government has promised to pay for but has no cash to pay for is 522% of GDP. That's not good. That's not good at all. And there's a reason why that has occurred. And the reason is because governments can print any money that they want. That's their business plan. I've got a bank account. I've got a keyboard. I'm going to type some numbers in. Look, I'm a business genius. That's what they're doing. And that takes away power from the people. A study just came out yesterday from Princeton and Northwestern University that proves, I think, what we all feel instinctively to be true. But they did a study in America, and they said, what are the political beliefs or, or, or preferences of the American population? And what has the government done? Was it this close? It was not. This, this. They couldn't, you know, it was like watching a guy tell you how big the fish was he caught in Narnia. They couldn't find a further gap. Now, business interests, financial interests, they had the ear of the government. The people did not. It's an oligopoly. It's a plutocracy. We all know this to be true. And I'm going to argue that it is fiat currency that enables that in the government, and it is Bitcoin that can stop it and stop a lot more besides. 2,500 years ago, Aristotle, known as a very smart cookie, defined money as four, having four characteristics. It had to be uh, portable, right? You know, lead coin, and, uh, <laughs> can't do that. Uh, it had to be uh, long-lasting and uh, not fade away, not lose uh, its uh, value. It had to be divisible, right? You can cut it up, reassemble it. And it had to have intrinsic value. And its most important intrinsic value was that it was limited. Limited. Now, I'm sure you guys know, what was the original money back in the day? Solid gold. That's right. Not just a great TV show, but a very, very fine basis for currency. Of course, nobody under 40 knows that reference. <laughs> okay, never mind. So... Gold has those properties. It lasts long, you can slice it up, it retains its value, you can reassemble it, and it has intrinsic value because people like it. It's shiny, it's pretty, and all that. So Bitcoin, of course, lasts. It's digital. Bitcoin is divisible, right? There will be 21 million Bitcoins. They can divided, be divided by 100 million each into these Satoshis, and uh, I think that's about as many pennies as there are in the world economy, so we're not going to run out of money anytime soon. And it is limited. And I know this sounds like very abstract, maybe even annoying intellectual economic abstractions, but the limits of money, the limiting of money, is the limiting of political power. We have these governments, and we believe that they're necessary, but they are considered to be great servants and terrible masters. <clears throat> we create them for security, we create them for <clears throat> defense, for dispute resolution through the court system, and then they seem to do everything else under the known universe, and they run up enormous debts, and they start wars, and they sell off the unborn to foreign banksters, and we can't control the government when we need to. 
We try to vote, we try to uh, rally, we try to have activism, and we cannot control this beast of the state. Anybody know how many Occupy Wall Street protesters ended up in jail? Anyone know that number? About 2,500. 2,500. The bankers in the United States are estimated, if you take out some of the government spending that's tried to remediate the damage, estimated to have destroyed about 40% of America's wealth. 40% of the wealth of the wealthiest country destroyed by a financial oligopoly who were clearly breaking, breaking laws repeatedly. Does anybody know how many bankers went to jail? Yeah, big fat goose egg, a bagel, zero. Remember Mitt Romney? Corporations are people, my friends. No, people go to jail. Corporations never go to jail because they give money to the government. Barack Obama was elected because it took the most money of any political candidate ever in history from the financial sector. And in return, he extends the TARP bailout. And banks that made hundreds of millions of dollars lying to their customers, selling them financial instruments that they were actually betting against, well, they get slap on the wrist fines that basically get passed off as costs to their customers. They pay nothing. We cannot control this monster. In the 19th century, we're also used to inflation here. It's crazy. Like I came to Amsterdam and my wife told me it was going to rain all week. Turns out it's quite sunny. I don't want to get full-on tomato head, so I went to get some sunscreen. Like $30 is like 20 euros for sunscreen and all that. I, I thought it was going to be like gold and turn me into C-3PO or something, but... It's just crazy expensive. When I first came to Canada in 1977, a candy bar cost 10 cents. You know, within 10 to 12 years, it was up to a buck. Inflation is just something we're so used to. In the 19th century, when gold was the basis of currency, prices went down. Can you imagine that? Don't we all feel like our money is just kind of evaporating? You know, like it's like grapes left out for ants to eat. Like you put it under your bed and it just smolders and vanishes. It's one of the reasons why we put money in banks, why we invest in the stock market. It's just a hedge against inflation. In the 19th century, when money was limited by gold, prices went down for a hundred years in general. Everything was a computer. Everything got better and cheaper over time. We, we, can't, we can't fathom this anymore. But that's how it used to be when money was limited. Now... What happened in the 19th century was rich people, not all rich people, but rich people in general want to privatize profits and socialize losses, right? Ooh, I made some good money. Yay, all mine. Fine, I'm fine. Down with property rights, good thing, right? Ooh, did I lose some money? Can we find a couple of taxpayers? Maybe they're kids. Maybe they're unborn. They're not voting yet. Let's do that. And in the 19th century, people put money into banks. Now they're already making money just by sitting on it because prices were going down. But they put their money in banks. Now, how do banks give you interest? They don't have any money other than what they're given. They're not entrepreneurs in the way most of the audience members here are. So banks lend money out to other people. And then those people make money and pay back the bank. And then the bank gives you a couple of points on your deposits. Fine business model, no problem with it at all. But in the 19th century, banks had the capacity for failure, of course, right? Because sometimes you invest, you give a whole bunch of people making carriages a lot of money, and then, oh, some jerk invented the car. Damn. 
buy to that money. And you lose a lot of money. And of course, banks maybe make one or two percentage points on a loan, which means for every loan that fails, between 50 and 100 have to succeed perfectly. So it's a very risky business. So banks were competing for customers, and they always wanted to be able to offer more interest. Now, how could they do that? Well, fractional reserve banking. Boy, there's a phrase that will get people to flock to you at dinner parties. I know about fractional reserve banking. Would you like to sit next to me? So the banks wanted to offer more interest, so they had to lend out multiples. Right? They got a ton of gold. They lend out five tons worth of money to people. And they hope that the law of averages is going to even it out and they're going to be okay. And, and you, no, a lot of times it did. And sometimes it didn't. Then people lost money. They lost money because they were greedy, because they wanted the bank to lend out more than it was holding. When the bank went bankrupt, a lot of rich people lost a lot of money. Where do they go? Oh, congressman. <laughs> they go to the state. Now, the problem is the state is a negative sum game. The state is the deal where they say, hey, I can give you five euros. And people are like, hey, I, I like euros, I'll take that. And they say, well, to give you the five euros, I need to tax you 10 euros first, if that's all right. And then people say, I think that deal just got away from me. I, I don't feel like that's going to work that well. Because, you know, you're going to give someone 100 bucks, you go tax people a dollar each, 100 people, you've got to go pick up that money and people aren't going to comply, you've got to have a court system, collection, IRS, all that. So it's a negative sum game. Some people think it's worth it. That's perhaps a conversation with other time. I'll be at the Q&A session afterwards. But it is a negative sum game. So if a bunch of rich people come to you and say, my bank went bust, give me some money. Well, you've got to go and raise taxes on a bunch of people. And they don't like that. See, when, when money is limited, when it's limited on gold, the government can't just make it up. It means if you want to transfer money, you have to go take it from someone first. And those people don't like it. And so governments are always trying to enrich people. They're always trying to break out of limited money, to get out of this little cage of limited money. And freedom for the government is enslavement for the people. We're talking about power to the people at this conference. When the government is free... The people are enslaved. When the government is contained, then the people are free. And when the government can print all the money that it wants, and when the government can create... In, in Canada, there's a province. It has 75-year bonds, right? Which means, give me money now, and in 75 years, someone will pay it back. I mean, there's no conceivable way that that could be considered just or fair or democratic. These people aren't even born yet, and you're taxing them. Picking the pocket of a fetus takes some pretty nimble fingers, but they can do it with fiat currency. To limit money is to limit political power. So prior to the First World War, Federal Reserve was created in America with the capacity to create money which is, well, technically called counterfeiting, but in the annals of government, it's sound fiscal policy. And during the First World War, which everyone expected started late in the summer and everyone expected it to be over by Christmas. Why? Because that's all the money they had. War is ferociously expensive. And all wars prior had been relatively short, relatively contained, and one by one, over the First World War, the European governments went off the gold standard because they had no gold. 
War and gold don't mix very well. War and limited currency don't mix very well. When you have fiat currency, you have like this infinite blender for human parts. You can just keep shoving more and more people in. If they'd had to wage the First World War on gold, it likely would have ended by Christmas 1914, and a further 9 or 10 million people would not have died. This is how serious money is. Money is life and death for millions of people. So the social programs that were instituted by most European governments in the 19th century, Germany first and foremost among them, kept running through the First World War. Right? You know that, I don't know if you know this, guns or butter, do you want to have a war economy or do you want consumer goods? When you have fiat currency, you don't have to give people that choice. You can have your social programs, you can have a war economy, and you pay for it by printing money. Anybody, what, what's, the, what's the effect of printing money? What does it do to prices? Who's awake? Yeah. <laughs> Goes up. Yeah, they go up. Inflation, technically, according to the Austrian economists, who I'd really recommend you look into, inflation is an inflation of the money supply. The price that goes up is just an effect of the inflation. First World War, they kept the social programs going while running unsustainable wars, and they had to go off the gold standard. The First World War did not need to be fought. The economic disasters that followed the uncoupling of money from gold are still being felt. 1971, in America, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society social programs were underway, costing billions and billions of dollars, fighting a war in Vietnam, which, like the First World War, did not need to be fought. Did they go to the people and say, we need money for the war, we're going to have to shut down all this other stuff? No. They went off the gold standard, just like the European nations had done through the First World War. They go off the gold standard so they don't have to ask you to choose between food and death, between life and murder, between guns and butter. Taxes in America have not been raised. They're waging a war on terror. Throughout all of human history, 174,000 tons of gold has been mined and refined. 174, just think 174. The war on terror cost 291,000 tons of gold. The cost of World War II for America, which was never invaded or bombed, save Pearl Harbor, was 15 times the amount of gold that they had in Fort Knox and the Fed. In terms of bitcoins, the war on terror costs 500 times more bitcoins than will ever be mined and about 1,100 times more than is currently available. How is this possible? How is it possible to wage these astoundingly destructive wars with the deaths of over a million Iraqis and the displacements of a million and a half Iraqis and in Fallujah, the genetic damage to the population as the result of these hellacious weapons is so bad that anthropologists and geneticists estimate that the population of Fallujah has been genetically destroyed for at least a generation. How is it possible? It's possible because money is unlimited. It's possible because not more than one in a thousand or ten thousand people know that they lost their house because they cheered the war. They don't know that. They, they can't trace that. They're certainly not educated about that. Why, why would you educate people about that if you want all the evils of warmongering political power? 
So when governments can print money, they don't have to ask the people to make rational decisions or to balance things, right? The basis of economics. All human desires are infinite. All resources are finite. But with the magic of the printing press, with the magic of typing whatever you want into your own bank account, you go into this crazy psychotic world of limitless capacity for destruction and debt. So if in 2003, the American government had gone to its population and said, hey, that's a damn bad guy, right? Bad guy. I think we're all in agreement on that. Very bad guy. Would be nice if they hadn't armed him before, but bad guy. Why don't we go to war? People say, I'm not sure about that. They say, well, that'll be $75,000 per household. Please and thank you very much. How many warmongers would be left? Oh, really? 75,000? Uh, no, that's okay. Blessed are the peacemakers. Let's, uh, let's find another route. The TARP bailout for the banks. Hey, do you feel like bailing out Daddy Warbucks and his gold monocle? Would that be fun for you? Great. $2,200 per person. $4,400 for every working person. Want to send that money to us? Really? No, I don't think so. But they can just keep doing things without referring to the will of the people because they didn't invent the photocopier, but they sure know how to use it. The government has no money of its own. Bitcoin is intrinsically limited. You can't make a Bitcoin. Oh, you can mine it. and buy, buy. The government can't print a Bitcoin. The government in a Bitcoin currency universe has to actually go to the people and ask them what they want. The government will actually have to do what it claims it does. Serve the people. Ask the people. Not with votes. Votes. You only ever get to vote for people who've already been bought and paid for. Who is up there on the podium in the presidential debates, whether you go to Europe or to America or South America or China, anywhere? The only people who are up there are people who've got enough money to run. And where are they getting the money from? They're getting the money from special interests at your expense. That's not a theory. I mean, this is fairly well documented. If we have a Bitcoin universe, you don't get to print money for war. You don't get to print money for a prison industrial complex. You don't get to print money for a war on drugs. You have to ask the people. War on drugs in America costs hundreds of billions of dollars a year. At the most conservative estimate, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. How many people, if their moral outrage against drug use, ooh, that's bad vegetation, if their moral outrage was not subsidized by money printing and they had to pay the bills themselves, how many of them would find tolerance for people who like Pink Floyd? I think they would be all right with that. <sighs> all the people who hate drugs and love Sgt. Peppers. <laughs> so Bitcoin gives us an opportunity to reclaim the power of the people to say yes or no to what the government claims that it wants to do. Because there's this weird thing that happens in society. There's something that's happening that's cool, and then people say, well, the government can make it better. And they say, okay, well, the government will make it better, or let's have the government add to it. And then what happens is, boink, you get over to this place where suddenly the government has to do it. And then suddenly it's like only the government can do it. And this is how we think about currency now. It has to be government. Why? It's a complete anomaly. The last time the government had this much power over currency was in the waning days of the Roman Empire. When 
they inflated the currency so much that the gold coins only had two or three percent of gold left in at the end. And they were trying to pay all their mercenaries with this crap gold. And the mercenaries said, this stuff is crap. We're coming to Rome to get the gold. They killed the Roman economy, depopulated Rome from like a million and a half people to 17,000 people in a year or two. And that was it for civilization for quite some time. When you give governments the power to control the money supply, it grows like a tumor until it extinguishes society itself. I really urge you to consider it to be that important. With Bitcoin, you can't steal it. Well, <laughs> if you leave your wallet on a park bench, it can be stolen. <laughs> But with any rudimentary security, you can't have your Bitcoin stolen. I was just speaking at a conference uh, in uh, Texas. I met some vendors who are integrating something so that if anybody tries to get a Bitcoin out of your wallet, It sends you a text message to your cell phone. You enter a PIN and you approve the transfer. Solved. Can't, can't steal the Bitcoins now. That happens anywhere and everywhere. There is going to be enormous amounts of resistance to the adoption of Bitcoin, but I really believe that it is about the most peaceful revolution that we can have in this world. It's been called the Internet of Money in that it's a protocol and... You can program around it. You can build anything on top of it, which the community, thousands of developers are currently doing. But it's better than the Internet. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a non-controversial statement. It's better than the Internet because the Internet has not slowed the growth of governments around the world. The Internet has not saved the next generation from the endless gutter hole of debt. Information empowers the people but not with regards to political power. Political power is a monopoly of the initiation of force in a geographical area. Information don't stop bullets. But when you don't have money to fund bullets, the bullets stop. War, surveillance, as the lady was talking about before, debt, the, the, the growing fascism that is occurring throughout the Western world is all predicated on money. Imagine a football game where every time you cheered, you were charged five euros. How loud is that game going to be? Very quiet. Imagine if our primitive reptile bloodlust brain, which we all have, nothing wrong with it. Imagine if our primitive bloodlust, us versus them, tribal, base of the skull meat brain, was provoked with an enemy. Those guys are bad. They're coming to get us. We don't want the smoking gun to be in the form of a mushroom cloud. What stops that brain from cheering war? Cost. Cost stops us. Think of the environmental predation and environmental destruction that is wrought by the continual increase in the money supply. How much consumerism is driven by the fact that your money is burning a hole in your pocket. Literally, it's melting, it's evaporating, it's dying in your pocket. Converted to something, converted to something, buy something. How much consumer demand is stimulated by excess money being flushed into the system? How much wealth, genuine wealth, not bubble wealth, genuine wealth, how much genuine wealth is not being created? I'll give you one tiny example, then I think I have to end. There was a study that came out recently that said if, just one tiny aspect, if American regulations and controls over the economy, interferences in the economy, had stayed at 
1946 levels. Yeah, it was not a Mad Max Thunderdome, flaming-headed, bayoneting kind of wasteland in America in 1946. A civilized society. If regulations had stayed that small in America, if they just stayed that size, the GDP of America would not be $15 trillion. It would be $53 trillion. This is the opportunity cost of one tiny slice of an expansion of government power. There would be no poverty, nobody would have to worry about health care costs, charity would take care of everyone, and there would not be, as there is in America at the moment, children born into $1.4 trillion worth of debt that they never voted for, never chose, and will spend the rest of their lives groaning under the yoke of foreign banksters to pay off. This is the alternative universe that Bitcoin can generate. So I strongly urge you to start looking into Bitcoin, start promoting it. Yes, it's great. You can make some money. You can do some cool stuff technically. But I really believe this is our best chance to save the world from a direction that it's heading, which is sadly a photocopy of the end of the Roman Empire. When you study history, you're basically watching the same movie over and over and over again with different costumes. Not a toga. It's a suit, but it's the same damn thing. Bitcoin, we can stop the tape. We can break out of the loop. We can regain power to the people. Thank you, everyone, so much. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. In just a couple of minutes, I'm going to give you some of my ideas about how the Bitcoin protocol, not the digital currency, but the protocol can be used to transfer some of the power back to the people. But first, I want to uh, add a brief comment about Stefan's comment about the unseen political power that is eating up the world. For a long time now, many of us have been speaking and writing about the fact that the only way to change the constant use of warfare instead of diplomacy to settle differences between various human populations is to quit using fiat currency. But until Bitcoin came along, I hadn't come across a single good answer as to how to starve the beast of the money that is uh, fueling these constant wars. On the day I was born, the entire world was at war. And the situation is even worse today, I think, mainly because so few people are willing to step back and observe the pattern of the constant wars that rage all around us. Today in the U.S., it is our nation's Memorial Day holiday, but I doubt if many people celebrating it have even the slightest idea of what it's about. As a child, my godfather was a World War I veteran and my dad was a World War II veteran, so our home on Memorial Day was uh, second only to Christmas for us. I'll spare you the details, but it meant a lot to our family to remember those who had been our friends, relatives, and neighbors that didn't return alive after the war. And contrary to popular belief, while I was indoctrinated into being a patriot, not for a moment did my elders glorify war. In fact, many times I heard them quoting President Eisenhower and saying, I hate war. That said, it was a combination of blind patriotism and cowardice that uh, ultimately saw me serving in the U.S. Navy off the coast of Vietnam instead of growing dope in Canada. I still regret the fact that it, I avoided reading about the true history of my country and of how both the Korean War and the American War in Vietnam had already been planned before the end of World War II. Had I known that on the very same day that the Japanese surrender was signed, 
transport ships left Okinawa loaded with tons of arms and equipment that had been stockpiled there for a possible American land invasion of Japan. It was enough equipment to supply over 250,000 men, and that mountain of war-making material was split between the South Koreans and North Vietnamese in order to continue the need for ever more weapons to be manufactured as these new wars were begun and waged. So read your history, and then you won't be very surprised at what is now taking place in Ukraine and Crimea. Iraq and Afghanistan are winding down for the U.S., and so now it's time to start the next round of wars that the owners of this world find so lucrative. The only way that I can see to stop them is to simply quit giving any value to their fiat currency. And so that's why I see digital currency, particularly the digital currency aspects of the Bitcoin protocol, so important. But I think that uh, the digital currency, as important as it is, may wind up being only the tip of the iceberg that the protocol can supply us. You know, in the beginning of his talk, Stefan spoke about the potential of the protocol, not just in the area of a public ledger of the transfer of value, but for copyright, wills, deeds, and as he said, almost anything you can think of can be implemented in the Bitcoin architecture. So here are my contributions to the pool of ideas that is now forming. And uh, just to be sure that you know that I am in no way proposing that anyone break any law of any nation, what I'm passing along here is an idea for a plot for a novel, short story, play, or movie that uh, perhaps some of our fellow saloners besides myself may be working on. Well, here's a way to work the Bitcoin protocol into your stories. Think of the protocol as a wrapper, an envelope. But it's an envelope that needs a private key to open it. Now what if that envelope had a way, upon the happening of a certain event, to use its key and open itself? That certain event, uh, well, it could be the arrival of a particular date or an obituary notice or simply the absence of a regularly scheduled event of some kind. Now suppose you have a character in a position to blow the lid off things, but instead of being a superhero, as I see Edward Snowden, your character is cowardly like I once was. Well, instead of making documents uh, immediately public, this reluctant whistleblower can wrap the incriminating documents in a Bitcoin wrapper and schedule them to release themselves in 25 years or uh, whatever. I can even see a teenage character, say a young girl who is horrified to learn that her father is a CIA assassin and she finds incriminating evidence in his study, bitcoins it and uh, sets it to be revealed on the day that the local paper uh, carries her father's funeral notice. (laughs) You get the point, I'm sure. I'm even seeing something like a uh, reverse of the uh, 1984 memory hole where maybe beginning a decade or so from now that each day sees more old secrets bubbling up. Now you see why uh, writing fiction is so much more fun than nonfiction. <laughs> and uh, here's another idea for the Bitcoin protocol. If uh, you aren't familiar with the FBI's COINTELPRO activities during the 60s, uh, well, you should look it up. The reason that uh, you'll want to know about that strike force is that, well, it's never been shut down completely. They just keep changing the name and their office location, but in one form or another, there's uh, still a program like that going on in the government. And if you don't know uh, what it was, in brief, the FBI infiltrated the peace movement, and uh, their agents even had love affairs with their targets, and uh, then they destroyed as many peace activists as they could. Uh, You know, that's what the government sees as its job, by the way, to uh, stifle all opposition to the status quo. 
Anyway, uh, the government isn't uh, content in just knowing everything you do online, uh, to the point of even being able to predict your activities in a broad sense. They also want their agents involved in watching you at gatherings you may attend. So then how can we build a worldwide community of like-minded people who can absolutely trust that a person is who she or he says they are? Well, right now I'm actually thinking of the scantily clad young women at Burning Man who were actually undercover agents for the Bureau of Land Management. So when a young honey asks you for an illegal drug, how can you tell if she's real or just trying to entrap you? Well, here's something that the uh, Bitcoin geeks among us can figure out. What if there was a coin that represented social capital, not money? Wouldn't it be great the next time you're at a meetup or a festival to be able to scan a QC code on uh, people's name tags and discover uh, what, for lack of a better word, their lineage is in the tribe? So if I'm meeting somebody for the first time at a festival and I see that they're a close friend of Alex Gray, I'm going to be a lot more open with them than if that person only had one friend and that friend lived in another country. Now, you may want to jump on this and say that, uh, well, this would just create more division and paranoia among us. But having seen what happens at a conference when somebody is uh, wrongly and innocently suspected of being a narc, uh, well, I'd say that the unfounded suspicion is equally bad. Uh, okay, let's get out of these loops. I, I guess that in uh, some ways this has been kind of a downer of a podcast, but I also believe that the information passed along here is critically important in getting you to begin giving more of your focus to issues that affect your personal privacy and that you pay attention to what your government is doing with the money that it's printing. In my opinion, the only way to defeat the beast is to starve it into submission. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.